sober hearts release, the sure hearts release. Oh, the microphone. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Begin again. So I'd like to give a talk this evening on the sure hearts release. This title comes from one of the suttas of, uh, spoken by the Buddha, which I'll um, repeat later on in the talk. In our practice, we begin to understand more and more deeply the changing, evanescent nature of life, of this mind-body process. And we come to understand that more and more deeply, more and more organically through this moment-to-moment mindfulness that we're all training in. We learn to bring a tender, balanced awareness to the changing experiences of our life here in retreat, and we learn how to do that more easily when we go home. We learn that so that the heart and mind can unfurl, it can unfold where it's folded in upon itself. Things can be known that haven't been known before, or maybe haven't been known as clearly before. We do this process so that we can understand how to be courageously clear and bring a sobering honesty to whatever is actually happening, no matter what it is, no matter how difficult it is to face, we can be honest about facing it, not back off, not have resistance to it. With this beautiful balance, when this balance happens, it enables us to see the path easily, to be able to pause on the path many moments, to see and understand what is unwholesome, inwardly and outwardly, what leads to suffering, in ourselves and others, and to refrain from acting it out, to relinquish what leads to suffering. We learn to pause in our life so we can see what is wholesome, what leads to the end of suffering, what leads to happiness, what leads to peace for ourselves and others. And we learn how to nourish that to feed that, to cultivate that over and over again. So with these two as a basis, learning to relinquish what is unwholesome, learning to nourish what is wholesome, this is the beginning of the development of wisdom. Wisdom cannot develop unless we do this first and all along the path. The development of wisdom means the purification or the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. For most of us, this happens slowly along the way in ever-deepening ways. For most of us, it doesn't happen like in a sitting or in a retreat or overnight. But we learn to see it over time. We learn to look back. This pausing is good. We, learn, we look back and we see, oh, a year ago I can see that I did this more often. I was unho- more, uh, acted out in unwholesome ways more often. And now 
there's more refraining from that. I remember an interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama when somebody asked him, have you made any progress in your path? And the Dalai Lama said, oh, if I look back one year, a little bit, maybe even not so much. But if I look back five years, I can see, oh, yes, I see, I see that I've made some progress in purifying my own heart. And ten years, even more so, can see even more. So it's over time that we purify greed, hatred, and delusion. And as we're doing this, along the way in our lives, we see that no matter what happens outside of us in this ever-fluxing world of joy and sorrow, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, we see that no matter what happens inwardly as well, no matter what happens in the habit patterns that keep coming up in relationship to what's going on in the world, we can always wait when the relationship to what's going on in the world is one of greed, hatred, or delusion, or what's going on outside of us. We know that the pond of our minds and hearts can come back to some stillness if there has been some reactivity. Our response to outer conditions uh, can be skillful. We can learn to respond skillfully. If we can just wait for that stillness to come in our hearts, that clarity. We know that deep within, beyond the pleasure and the pain, this wisdom can experience life clearly and can respond to life skillfully. We gain that confidence as we do the the practice along the way. In a practical way, I can say for myself and see from others in their Dhamma life that there is a strong confidence in oneself, an ability to rely on oneself deeply, to be able to know that no matter what happens, no matter what stones are thrown in the pool of our lives, we can always know deeply how to respond, how to be, where to live from. We know that we can wait for ripples to return to natural stillness and clarity. We know that that will come. Tonight, I'd like to give a Dharma overview, a big view of our Dhamma or Dharma practice. Sometimes in our lives here on retreat, we talk a lot about the moment-to-moment view, what's going on and what's happening in a deep way in each moment. But it's helpful to see the Dhamma in a bigger way, how our practice produces refinements of happiness and peace along the way. So this happiness and peace is not from acquiring anything material or from attaining anything even spiritual, like meditative states of jhanas, these deep meditative concentration states. This happiness and peace can come from that, of course, from jhanas or from concentration, but it's not long-lasting. It's not about acquiring even spiritual knowledge. The bottom line of our Dhamma practice and the happiness, the deep happiness, comes from letting go, from deeply letting go, purifying the heart of any clinging 
or tendency to cling, any hatred or tendency towards aversion, any delusion or ways that the mind and heart is not experiencing life clearly. This word delusion, sometimes it's not so clearly defined because it's not so clearly seen within us or others. In one way, we can say that delusion is the concepts, the stories we repeat and believe and live out without uh, really exploring, without really understanding where are they coming from? Are they coming from some uh, deep understanding of truth from within us? Or are they just coming from some unconscious belief that may not even be true? Delusion, the wrong understandings we base everything on that keep the clinging and hatred going in our lives. So this process of mindful awareness has immediate and far-reaching benefits. These benefits weaken the harmful tendencies playing out within ourselves. I'd like to read the words of Sogyal Rinpoche, one of um, the more uh, recent Tibetan teachers of our time. He says, the practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself, which is the immediate benefit, do you become useful to others, which is the far-reaching benefit. So how we are in our own lives greatly affects others, of course. The ripples go out, the good ripples, the wholesome ripples go out and affect countless people in our lives. When I first started practicing, what I was searching for was some kind of peace, some kind of immediate peace. Even if it was temporary, it was good enough for me. I wanted this peace in my daily life, a happiness, a kind of calm, I used to wake up worrying all the time. I still do, but it's not as bad as before. Um, I wanted this peace and happiness to be reliably accessible, not something that I had to go to a retreat for every time and then live out the the calm that came from the retreat and then live my life in the same old way so I had to take retreats over and over again. Well, that happened too. But I soon learned that that wasn't the long-range view. So one day, um, I went to uh, a retreat. And this uh, weekend retreat came about in this way. This was the first retreat I went to. I was living on the California coast, actually uh, near Santa Cruz, in that small town called Aptos. And I was a single parent of three children. And on my way home one day um, from San Francisco, I saw a sign at the university along on the coast, and it said that there was a spiritual fair going on. And so I just drove in, even though my kids were clamoring and pulling on my uh, shirt and pant tails to go home and do something more exciting than be with a bunch of hippies and smell incense and hear all the drumming. But that was interesting to me, so I went in 
and I went in this big cavernous uh, gymnasium. And in that gymnasium, there were all kinds of things going on. There was drumming, which I do love, and music, and uh, all kinds of beautiful incense, and uh, people dancing and chanting. But far in the corner, in the farthest corner that I could see, there was a sign big enough for me to read with my kids pulling on me and um, whining and crying to do something else. The, the sign said, Silent Retreat. So I went directly to that sign. There was no stopping anywhere. And uh, I met a few people who turned out to be quite active in the Dharma scene these days. And uh, I signed up for that weekend retreat. Luckily, there were people kind enough to take care of my children. And I trusted that then. You know, I just had some deep trust in that. So they came to the house, took care of the children, and um, the children had loads of fun. And I went to that retreat. From that retreat, from the very beginning, I felt at home. I knew that this was my place, that there was great learning, there was great training to be done here. It wasn't going to be easy. I spent most of that first retreat either uh, asleep or restless or in the walking periods trying to uh, balance my imbalanceable checkbook. You know, it was like um, really just trying to hold it together. But I knew that that was for me. And from that very moment, from that very beginning, it was made clear to me that the aspirations that I had to attain peace and happiness, even momentarily, some calm, were indeed something worthy of my time and my effort. They were good aspirations and definitely would be enjoyed and were enjoyed during that retreat, moments of it. But that was not the ultimate aim. That was not the long-range view that the Buddha had. And the long-range view that the Buddha had for us, has for us, was not held back. You could say that the Dhamma was not dumbed down. It was not held back at all. It was not weakened. It was shown to us clearly what the long-range view was that there is a possibility to realize unconditional peace and happiness, that it doesn't have to be some temporary calm, although that's worthy of our goal, of our aspiration, of our time, that there was a possibility for unshakable deliverance of mind, for a mind that could be totally free of greed, hatred, and delusion, yet totally skillful in its way to respond to the world to be the best that we could be, to give to the world all that we've got in the best ways possible. This the Buddha called the sure heart's release, what he called the very reason for the teachings offered by a Buddha, the sure heart's release. So these are the words of the Buddha from the middle-length discourse. This is the discourse on the simile of the heartwood from the Majjhima Nikaya. So this holy life, Brahmins, he was speaking to a group of Brahmins, 
So this holy life, Brahmins, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. In another passage, the Buddha says, the purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. So during his lifetime, the Buddha made it clear that the developments of virtuous conduct, of concentration, of knowledge and vision are indeed part of the path. They're experienced. They're, they lead us onward. They're great benefits along the path to the sure heart's release, the unshakable deliverance from the endless cycles of this uh, samsara, this endless cycle of unhappiness and suffering. Of course, there are moments in between of joy and uh, gratitude and happiness and all those wonderful things. But where can there be total joy, total peace, endure something deeply enduring? This is what my own heart and mind longed for in a wholesome way. The sure heart's release, the profound liberation, the great peace beyond all description. Recently, I heard this from one of the great Tibetan masters, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche. And it spoke to me in its way of really understanding deeply how it is in our lives, this infinite ocean of samsara, the pounding waves of um, the thoughts that we have over and over again that usually don't lead us anywhere, the aches and pains of the body, the unwholesome mind states that keep coming up, delusion. So again, this led me uh, and deepened my um, wholesome longing towards this great liberation. So from Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, he says, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace. So of course, I think this is something that all of us can uh, relate to, how it feels for us to be human How do we live this holy life? It is said that there are three areas of life we can pay attention to. So are we paying attention to these three areas of life that we can practice within, that we're actually practicing here? How can we support this profound liberation that is the ultimate goal of this practice? It's said that there are three pillars of the Dhamma, or the Dharma. This is a framework that Manindra used, one of our teachers, 
upon which uh, the strength of our holy life can be built upon. They all require the practice of mindful awareness. So the first area is the area of dana, mindful practice of giving from an attitude, an inner attitude of generosity. So it's not just giving in a willy-nilly, unconscious way, but giving very consciously, very mindfully, understanding what the ins and outs, what the benefits of, of dana, of giving, are. The second area or pillar of the Dhamma is sila. Sila is mindfully living uh, in harmony with ourselves and others. This is sila, mindfully living in harmony with others and ourselves, refraining from harming through our speech and behavior. And all of sila, you might say, is covered with the five, by the five precepts that we take every morning. The third area is bhavana. Bhavana means bringing forth what has not yet been brought forth in the heart, in the mind, this kind of training of developing the mind and heart. This is done uh, with the development of concentration and the development of wisdom in these particular two areas. There's a story of the Buddha walking in the forest with a group of monks, and he bent down in the forest and scooped up a handful of leaves. And then he asked the monks, which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forests? Well, the monks, of course, being well-trained and practically all, if not all, being fully enlightened beings, I understand from that sutta. The monks answered rightly, correctly, and they said, the leaves in all the forests, that is more than the leaves in your hand. And the Buddha replied, the knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in the forest. But what I teach is like leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for freedom, for liberation. So in different ways, as you practice and study in the Dharma, you'll be, you'll be able to hear these uh, various breakdowns of the of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, the, uh, the Three Pillars of the Dharma that I'm speaking about tonight. And you might see, say that these are the, the leaves in the hand. You need to pay attention to just a few things, and really all of the Dhamma, all of the understanding can come from that. I remember one of our teachers saying frequently to us, keep it simple, simple and easy, he would say, simple and easy. So the simplicity of paying attention to these three areas of my life, these three pillars of the Dhamma, has been a reliable foundation for me, upon which to build my life, upon which to open my heart, to let the Dhamma grow and strengthen to see that wisdom is available more and more easily. So these three practices, dana, the practice of giving of ourselves to life and to others, 
sila, the practice of living in harmony, and bhavana, the development of wisdom and concentration. With the practices of dana and sila, just to speak about those briefly, the practice of giving, the practice of living in harmony, not only do they promote well-being for our others, but that open-hearted, loving uh, practice and training promotes a deep sense of well-being within ourselves when we're connecting with others in the loving way, by giving, by being kind to others, not harming. It's a way we can feel our intrinsic goodness. It's quite a dis-ease in our lives. I see this, and many other uh, teachers and guides in the Dhamma see that we're all so plagued by feelings of unworthiness, self-deprecation, feelings of disconnection. It's hard for people to do the loving-kindness practice, uh, beginning with themselves, because of this. This is a kind of disease of our Western life. But when we practice dhanansila through connection, through our sense of knowing our deep uh, worthiness, we become more whole. We feel a sense of freedom from that. We're more able to connect with a place of worthiness in our hearts. And this is a kind of medicine for us by giving, by practicing non-harming. These are actually medicines not only for others, but they're medicine for our own hearts. It gives us a faith and confidence to keep going, the courage to keep going. Sometimes when I'm doing the metta practice, and I too feel like when they say in the beginning, uh, when we ponder or reflect on some goodness upon, about ourselves, it's hard for me to think sometimes of what, what, what is it in recent times that I can think of about myself. And one of the things I think of a lot when I finally come to is that I've been able to do the best I can with the precepts, or I come to understand or remember some little act of giving that I did, whether it's just reading a story to my grandchildren or um, feeding the poor in our uh, community. It doesn't have to be a big deal, but it's a medicine for us as well as others. So with the practices of Dhanansila, this is what comes of it. And with the practice of Bhavana, it can only happen upon the foundation of Dhana and of Sila. It brings forth understanding and wisdom because our hearts can feel that kind of deep, worthiness, a deep sense of purity. This is from the heart essence of great perfection. It's a saying from the Dzogchen tradition. Now in our day-to-day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind and heart is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented mind is the source of our happiness. 
So tonight I'd like to explore and fill out the first and second of these three pillars, dana and sila. <clears throat> and I'll speak about the third one, bhavana, in another Dhamma talk. So the first part, the first pillar of dana, the practice of giving from an inner attitude of generosity. The acts of giving are accompanied by a strong, wholesome, conscious intention. This is what dana is. Dana is the act of giving. And there's another word. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's kaga. Is that how to pronounce it? Is a, a sense of generosity from within. Dana and kaga, this generosity and this act of giving, have to go together in order for it to be strong. Sometimes you know we just give, and that's good when we give. But when we're giving from a very conscious, mindful intention that's coming from a very deep, wholesome place that knows the benefit of giving to others and knows what the benefit is to ourselves, then this is a powerful act of giving. It's not just giving willy-nilly, but it understands very deeply what giving and uh, the act is, where the act is coming from. So dana has two aims, and both come from ever-deepening understanding. The first aim is to help others, of course, when we give of ourselves, of our time, our kindness, our material resources, our energy, it relieves others of their suffering in the present or in the future times. It inspires in them a sense of worthiness. This is not what we often think of. When we share or give of ourselves to others, we connect with them in a way that says, you are a worthy person. Um, You are a person I would like to share my life with even if it's just for a moment. This is a great gift to that person. It gives them a sense of inner richness, that worthiness that they feel in themselves when we acknowledge, I recognize your goodness. I recognize your beauty. It gives them a sense of feeling loved, not just knowing it kind of in a vague way, but actually feeling it in the moment from an act of giving that we can generously uh, act upon. It could be something so simple. As I was updating this talk, I came across, just opened this book, The Random Acts of Kindness. I'm sure uh, many of you have come across stories from that book or stories anywhere, Random Acts of Kindness. So this is a little story. When I was going through a very difficult time, this person said, someone called me up and played piano music for me on my answering machine. It made me feel so very loved, and I never discovered who did it. And it reminded me of one of my friends, our friends on Maui. She's the um, conductor of our um, beautiful community choir on Maui. And she does that as a community service, even though she has a very busy business life. She also plays the harp. She does a lot of giving. 
And one day she just thought, well, I give a lot, but what, what could I do different that I haven't done before? She just told me this story not too long ago. And she said, I thought that I've never played my harp to sick people in the hospital. So she decided to take her hospital to the emergency ward. And she played it in the emergency ward. And she plays, she's a beautiful harpist. And she played that harp in the emergency ward. And people just stopped and whatever the wailing and crying was of the little kids and the ouching of the grown-ups were for their broken bones or um, aches and pains in their body. They were able to have some moments of soothing moments, moments of some appreciation even for this person, just going there and just setting her harp down and playing. The policemen that are... um, that that are there, have a little office there. And so the nurses and the doctors appreciated so much. They themselves felt helped, calmed by the harp playing and were able to give of themselves more generously and more from the heart. So it's just these simple things. It doesn't have to be that we have to be this great benefactor in a material way. It may inspire gratitude within the recipients. That gratitude, that wholesome attitude is a gain for them. Whenever, think of it for yourselves whenever you have felt a sense of gratitude in your own heart, how it's a medicine for you. How we feel a sense of relief and relaxation when we feel grateful for whatever is being given to us, or maybe we see others giving, and we feel grateful that they're human beings that are doing that in the world. So this is the first result. It makes others happy. It inspires them in them a sense of gratitude. Um, They feel worthy and loved. And the second aim is that it benefits ourselves, really. This came as a surprise to me when Manindraji was giving me this teaching. He was giving me this teaching because I was helping him as he was going through some... um, uh, He was healing from uh, some surgery. And he was at our house for a couple of months. And while he was there, I was feeding him and and helping him with um, his medicines and just basically taking care of him. And he said, do you want to understand the benefit of giving uh, in a more deep way? And I said, of course I do. And he said, you can understand uh, that you're giving and it's helping others, but you can understand how it helps yourself, yourself also. So he told me that in giving, in uh, giving of myself in any way, it supports my own well-being because in those moments that I give and when I'm giving very consciously and mindfully, I'm coming from a place of loving-kindness. And the development of loving-kindness comes right along with the development of generosity. He also said that when you give, there has to be some compassion in your heart or some sympathetic joy in your heart. 
when you give. You want others to be happy or you want to relieve others from their suffering. This is sympathetic joy and compassion. When you give, there has to be some equanimity because to part with what is yours, even if it's your energy, you have to have some balance to be able to do that. So even within yourself, it brings an immediate happiness that no one can take away when you give. When you think about it more deeply beforehand, just to have the intention to give, there's some happiness in your heart. And in the moment that you give, if you look closely, there's some happiness. And after you give, when you think upon it, when you reflect upon what happened in the past, there's happiness. So moments of giving, no matter how small, can be completely surrounded by happiness. In Burma, I've told this story a few times, but there are some new ones here, so I can tell again. Uh, In Burma, when we go to Burma, people often offer food to retreats. And sometimes we go to these uh, big retreat centers, and you see that food is being offered to all of those who are practicing, sometimes a whole year in advance. One time I went to this studying monastery near Mandalay, and it was a great monastery um, uh, near Mandalay. And I wanted to give a meal offered by Steve and myself, but I saw that it was signed up a whole year in advance, giving to all the monks who are studying the Dhamma. And so we had to sign up for much, much later, of course, but still we did. And the retreat that I usually go to in Burma at um, my uh, teacher's place in, in Rangoon, or just outside of Rangoon, um, we often email ahead to say, please reserve this date for us. We'll be sending the dana for the food for all the yogis, because otherwise um, it's not, uh, it could be taken. We often reserve... Um, my birthday, which is in December, and Steve's birthday, which is in January, because the retreat dates are uh, two months, December and January. And uh, when we go to do the practice there, at the time of the giving of the, of the offering of the meal, sometimes families from the neighborhood, the, the neighboring communities come, who have offered the meal, and so we're all there, you know, sit, having sat down and we're eating our food. And the whole family, if not the whole village, is there at the side of the dining hall watching us eat with great happiness. And actually before that, we say a little kind of blessing uh, about gratitude. And then we, we bless the donors and we say sadhu, sadhu, sadhu to all the donors for having given us this food so that we can nourish our bodies this day so that we can continue eating. And in fact, it's interesting, we've started that, um, that on our, for our retreats, that ritual in a way for our retreats. And we've had retreats on Maui, a one-month retreat, um, which we had to stop a, a few years ago because the venue is now used by someone else. But by Oprah, actually, 
<laughs> but now, um, even when we send the, the little uh, notification out that we're going to have even a one-week retreat, people write in and they say, I want to offer dana for this day or that day. And usually the whole retreat food is paid for before the retreat even begins. The food is all paid for out of the happiness of so many people and the understanding that this benefits them also. This brings such immediate happiness in their own hearts, this giving. It develops a sense of inner wealth, of inner richness, counteracting a sense of inner poverty. That mentality of poverty that we have, that we can't give. Generosity is uh, a medicine. Giving lets go of clinging. (laughs) Um, It's said that one of our teachers, Utejaniya, says, when you practice generosity, you're really letting go of greed. It develops an easefulness of letting go in all areas of our life, not just material or or energetic letting go, or letting go of time. But we let go of our views and opinions, usually views and opinions that haven't served us. We let go of our need to be right. We let go of resentment. We let go of blaming others. These come more easily when we practice generosity. This is um, from the Itivutaka. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there were anyone to receive it. Oftentimes I remember the story of Manindra um, when he was there recovering from his surgery at our home, I would oftentimes have to leave him to eat alone because I would be working. I'd come back to check on him after having put his food in a place where he could easily get it. And I'd come home and I'd ask him, how was your meal today? Were you, were you okay today? Did you eat well? And he would say, I was fine. It was a beautiful meal. And I shared my meal even with the ants and the insects who were, or the cat and the dog. He wouldn't really let a meal go by without sharing it with others. It was that important to him. If we were sitting at the table with him, he would often feed us with his hands. He would shove the banana into our mouth. Or he would, you know, take the rice in his hands in the way that... uh, Indians do and put it right in our mouths like we were children. He would also give the Dhamma even when he was sick. During that time, sometimes he couldn't sit up. It said that the Dhamma is the highest gift. Even when he couldn't sit up, he would chant in bed. I would sit next to his bed on the floor in the morning when we would Uh, do our meditation together. And then at the end of the sitting, he would do a blessing chant, a protection chant for me and the family and the cats and the dogs and all the creatures there around. 
And he would do that um, even not being so well. The far-reaching benefit and result of the practice of giving, of generosity, is the development of a heart and mind of non-greed. It's the development of a heart and mind that can easily let go. As Utejaniya says, giving away your clinging, giving away your greed. And as we continually practice generosity or non-clinging, it becomes natural for the mind to let go of the concepts, the ideas, the opinions, and projections that keep us not free, not living peacefully in this life. Achansha says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. So eventually, at the end of our physical life, when it's said that the conditions come together for uh, a great propensity to understand deeply this great peace, to, as some traditions say, to be enlightened when the conditions are ripe. Or it may be not at the end of this physical life, but before this physical life has ended, the ability to let go of all formations, anything that arises in the mind, to be able to let go and realize that complete peace and freedom in this very life. So this is the first pillar of the Dhamma, generosity, dana, giving. And the second pillar is sila. Sila is sometimes translated as morality, but that's a very um, limited and not so descriptive um, way of talking about sila. Sila is living in harmony. And you might say living in harmony by the careful consideration and acting out of our speech and behavior, mindfully, skillfully, It's a deep respect for all beings, including ourselves. It makes not just for outer harmony, but harmony within our own hearts. This is why we practice sila, which is why we remind ourselves of the precepts every morning. Certain junctures in my practice, when I've made the intention to clean up my act a little more, have come from times when I've realized, ooh, I'm not acting or speaking so skillfully. And I, you know, there are times when I really want to get that Dharma duct tape out a little more frequently and put it on my mouth, (laughs) keep my mouth shut before something comes out of it that will harm others or myself or myself. Or maybe it's come from watching others and witnessing in, in another something I wouldn't like to do, something I would like to be more careful about myself. It's really helpful to make a greater intention sometimes to look at the practice of sila, the precepts, and see what area can I get really interested in? Can I practice with more curiosity, greater intention? We have precepts that are for training. These are trainings, not commandments. Uh, 
The training says, I undertake the training to refrain from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, or indulging in substances that cloud the, the mind. They come as a training because the Buddha knew with great compassion that the habit patterns of the mind, the compulsions to injure ourselves and others with our words and with our actions, these tendencies and compulsions are very deep. They're they're habit patterns that are so hard to let go of. They're part of our human condition. That's why the Buddha gave the precepts out of compassion. They come out of ignorance. We need to remind ourselves as often as we can how to catch these tendencies as soon as possible. Can we take the precepts often? Not just as a ritual, but as a way of really reminding ourselves. Uh, One of the most inspiring things for me is when I'm in Burma and I hear the refuges and the precepts chanted every morning, sometimes in the afternoon. And you can hear it sometimes several times a day. And it's always reminding me to pay attention, pay attention to what I say, to what I do. Am I harming myself? Am I harming others? Am I harming the karmic stream of my mind and heart? It's said that the proximate causes for careful attention to arise are known as the two guardians of the world, the two guardians of the world. And they're known in Pali, which is the ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were preserved in. These Pali words for the two guardians of the world are Hiri and Otapa. And you don't need to memorize that. I just put them out um, just for interest's sake. These two guardians, Hiri and Otapa, which I'll explain, are the underpinnings of the precepts. Many fine translators like to use these Pali terms because they mean so much more than their English translations. So I'll explain that in a moment. Hiri is translated as moral shame, so you can see why they're not very good translations. Because this is not associated with self-aversion, this kind of uh, feeling of shame which can sometimes be felt as self-aversion. But this hiri is an inner sense that our words or our behavior don't feel right. And we all have that. If we can pause, which mindfulness is asking us to do, if we can pause enough in our lives and have a sense of that feeling, that do we feel that what we're going to say or what we're going to do is right. Sometimes I can just say to myself, this doesn't feel right. Or it's that intuitive sense that this is hurtful to myself. That comes with a lot of clarity. This, um, what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do, we can feel it before it actually happens. We can already feel that this is hurting myself. Just the thought of saying this Just the thought of doing this is like an ouch already. It's a danger to ourselves and to others. 
It comes, this hearing comes out of respect for one's dignity, for one's own integrity. How often do we think about that? So the precepts are asking us to really reflect on that. How can we respect our own integrity, our dignity? It comes out of wisdom. We don't want um, what comes just out willy-nilly to get replanted in in our karmic stream, to come up again as a new sprout that we have to endure and maybe be unconscious about yet another time. So how can we be more and more conscious about this? This is uh, the first guardian of the world, which is called Hiri, respect for ourselves. And otapa is translated as moral dread or moral fear. Again, a very poor translation. This otapa is a healthy form of fear that not only a fear of the defilements that come up within us, but we know that this is going to harm others. It's a fear of harming others and the fear of um, being uh, at the mercy of their aversion to what that is, the blame. This is a fear that it would break the harmony within our communal standards. We don't want to do that. We may dread the difficulties that would come from that. It's a healthy dread. We may fear losing the trust of others, especially the wise. We may lose the trust of the virtuous whom we treasure. Oftentimes when Steve and I talk about doing things, We think so carefully about it. We usually do. We try to. We think about how would would others that we treasure lose their faith in us, in what we represent, in the Dhamma, in our friendship. So this otapa is a healthy form of fear. We don't want to lose the trust of others. A fear of being plagued not only by blame from others, but being plagued by self-blame. So Hiri and Otapa are the support of mindfulness. Recently, um, a friend told me that she had an interaction where she felt totally reactive, and she wanted to say something or act something out, but she knew it would come out the wrong way. So she decided to wait because otherwise she would add more pain to where there was already some pain. She waited so she could uh, resort to deeper places within her, deeper resources, so that when she could say something, it could come from a peaceful, calm place. It could come from a place of a well-thought-out understanding. So when she did that, she was respecting herself. This is Hiri. And when she did not want to inflict pain upon another, this is Otapa, respecting others. So these are the two guardians of the world. The Buddha said that the magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. 
If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, he or she risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So if we don't take all of these practices seriously, the bhavana part, the part of practicing meditation or the cultivation of the purification of the heart and of the mind, these are not likely to be strong or very deeply developed, this bhavana, our meditation. It's likely to be just shallow. It's said that meditation is like taking a powerful medicine. If we take this powerful medicine and just skip the other part, the sila part, the dana part. When we take this powerful medicine, the doctor, who could be the Buddha in this instance, says, you need to avoid, when you take this medicine, you need to avoid junk food. Because if you keep doing the junk food, then the medicine won't work. The junk food is not being in line with sila, or not practicing, for example, letting go through dana, not practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, for example. In other words, if there's no ethics, then meditation is ineffective. So are we really paying attention to these two uh, pillars of the Dhamma? Or do we just think that we're going to meditate our way through the purification process? It's not enough to just come to retreat and meditate and learn the bhavana part. We really have to understand and do the other part, living in harmony, watching our speech and behavior, living mindfully through that, practicing dana. The more powerful these are, the greater the potential for bhavana, cultivating the heart and mind is. So these are powerful protections, sturdy foundations. And the next talk I'll give will be on bhavana, cultivation of the heart and mind. So I'd like to end with um, this that I began with from the Buddha's words. The purpose of teaching of my teaching of the holy life, of the Dhamma, is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. So let's sit for a moment and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.